Today on Something You Should Know, ever been driving and have a motorcycle just appear out of nowhere? I'll explain why that happens a lot. Then, fascinating moments in the history of technology, from YouTube to the iPhone and the movie Toy Story. Toy Story was actually quite a groundbreaking film because it was the first fully feature-length film that was completely computer animated. Despite how popular it is, a lot of people actually don't know just how much was riding on its success. Also, pictures you should never post on social media and what really determines how long you live. And it's not about going to the doctor. If you look at the maps of life expectancy by zip code in a city like Philadelphia, people living in the Liberty Bell area have life expectancies that are about 20 years longer than people in the adjacent uh, zip code in East Philadelphia. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make low-maintenance bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we had nobody coming into the showroom, so we started doing virtual visits via Microsoft Teams. We're able to see two or threefold the amount of customers we used to be able to see. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. I really think it's going to set a standard for retail moving forward. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. If you drive a car, you've probably had that experience with a motorcycle or a bicycle where it seems to have come out of nowhere. You didn't see it and then all of a sudden it was right there. That turns out to be a very common experience, and it has to do with the limitations of your vision and brain. You see, a motorcycle approaching head-on from a distance occupies a very small part of a driver's vision, and if it's going quickly, it's possible that the eye simply doesn't get around to looking at it enough to make it stick in the brain before that motorcycle arrives in the driver's immediate vicinity. Let's take a typical case. You're preparing to make a left turn from a side road onto a main road. There's a motorcycle flying down that main road towards you. So you, the driver, you look left and you don't see anything because it's pretty far away. And then you look right and now you look left again. Now the motorcycle is much closer, almost on top of you. But because you didn't see it the first time you looked, and this is important, Your brain simply discards it as a result of your brain not expecting to see it. So, you pull out in front of the motorcycle. So, what can you do about this? Well, you just have to be more conscious and deliberate when you look around as you drive. It will lead to a much higher quality mental picture. In short, you'll actually learn how to see things that are otherwise invisible. And that is something you should know. Over the last 30 years or so, our lives have been transformed by technology. The PC, the smartphone, software, the World Wide Web. We use and have come to rely on so much technology. And how some of that technology evolved and arrived in your life is really interesting. Degogo Altrade is the creator of a YouTube channel called Cold Fusion, which offers a series of Really interesting videos on technology, and he's got over 1.6 million subscribers. 
DeGogo is also the author of a book called New Thinking, From Einstein to Artificial Intelligence, The Science and Technology that Transformed Our World. Hi, DeGogo. Welcome. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on. So you have really studied technology going pretty far back and then right up to modern day. And what I like about your videos is that they're really interesting and easy to digest. And and when you watch them, you see that there are some really fascinating backstories to much of the technology we use today. Yeah, that's very true. There's um, definitely an interesting story behind most of the fundamental technologies that we see around us each and every day. So let's talk about some of them. And maybe YouTube would be a good place to start because you have this big YouTube channel. And I think everybody's been to YouTube, maybe posted videos on YouTube, certainly watched videos on YouTube. So how did all that begin? Sure. So first of all, just to give you a scale of how big YouTube is, every single minute, there's over 300 hours of video actually uploaded. So it's absolutely massive. But when you look at its origins, it's actually quite a funny story. So there were three ex-PayPal employees that tried making actually a video dating website in 2004. And they pretty much tried to get people to sign up. They even paid some girls to uh, sign up to the dating website, but it ultimately failed. No one wanted to do it. So they kind of abandoned that idea. And then later on in 2004, there were two events that happened, two major events that lit a spark in their brain. So the first one was the uh, Boxing Day tsunami that was quite devastating. But then the other one was actually Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction that famously happened. So it actually gave them an idea. They realized that they couldn't actually find videos of any of these topics online easily. So they thought about it and then they said, well, instead of making a website where people can upload videos of their dating profile, how about we make a website where people can upload absolutely anything that they want? So they went about building that with the infrastructure they already had, and then they went live with what their new website was to be called, YouTube, in 2005. Not long after that, I think it was a couple of years after they went live, Google kind of looked in and saw that what they were doing was had a lot of potential, so that they bought them for a multi-billion dollar deal, I think it was $9 billion, and um, yeah, it came under the umbrella of Google, and they put advertising on there and made revenue out of the website and uh, it grew to be obviously the largest video sharing website in the world. I think for a lot of people one of the first uses of technology the way we think of technology today was Nintendo playing games on Nintendo. So talk about that. Uh, In the early days when they were coming up in the 1980s there's quite a couple of interesting stories about um, some of their biggest hits. So you might know the video game Donkey Kong the platformer jumping game that was originally based off a popular tv show popeye um, in the 1980s but nintendo actually couldn't get the rights to actually base their characters off the popeye characters so they had to kind of just change it a bit so the uh antagonist who was bluto in the popeye series just became a bumbling gorilla and uh popeye actually became the character of Jumpman, which is the Jumpman was actually the character that the player uses to jump between different platforms And so Mario, like everyone knows who who Mario is from the Nintendo universe, but the origins of the character was actually quite interesting. So uh, back in the day, Nintendo America was actually leasing an office and the landlord, who was quite a fiery, angry Italian man called Mario Siegel, and he would often 
barge in during meetings and demand late rent while the Nintendo staff were having meetings. So they decided to kind of play a little trick and tongue-in-cheek named Mario after this angry landlord. And interestingly enough, the reason Mario has a hat and moustache isn't because that he was Italian, an Italian plumber. It's actually because it was quite hard to draw his features using the limited technology, the pixelated graphics that were available at the time. It was just easier to draw those than the actual hair and mouth. So it's actually quite interesting when you look into it. And Pac-Man, uh, this is not Nintendo, so actually another video game company called Namco, but Pac-Man was actually originally going to be called Puck-Man, which was spelt P-U-C-K, but... Obviously, the Japanese um, executives were quite worried that um, young American kids would scratch out the end of the P and make it an F, and I guess that sounds too much like something else, so they decided to change the name just to Pac-Man. <laughs> so yeah, some very interesting stories uh, uh, in the 80s when gaming was coming up. Let's talk about memes, because uh, you can't go on Facebook or Instagram or uh, you can't go anywhere and not see memes about somebody somebody or, or something where did that start? I guess we could start from the definition of a meme because most people think a meme is just something that, uh, you know, a funny picture online that has a few pieces of text under it. But the actual original idea of the meme was actually um, coined by uh, Richard Dawkins. And what it really means is actually just simply a, a spread of an, a cultural idea through society. So the first meme on the internet could actually be recognized as the smiley face. So it's an interesting story. Um, in 1982, there was a university student at Car Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, his name was Scott Fallman. And he noticed something. Like back in the day, uh, they did have internet, um, not the World Wide Web as we know it, but still computers could communicate between each other. Um, so students would often talk on forums and talk about different things. But he did notice that there was no way of actually conveying human emotions during these text-based conversations. So someone, someone would make a joke on one end of the computer, and then on the other end, at another university, someone would take this the wrong way and start getting angry, and then it would start a big flame war, and people would start shouting at each other just because the joke was taken the wrong way. So Scott noticed this, and he came up with um, the solution of a uh, colon and then a, a parentheses to make, a, I guess, a pictorial smiley face over text so when he did it he first he first just put it at the end of a sentence and then he soon noticed that it was catching on at other universities all around the country and then within a matter of weeks the whole of america was using it um throughout the university networks so um it's quite interesting when you when you look at it that way that it that one idea spread and people just intuitively knew how to that it meant that the joke wasn't to be taken seriously okay so the smiley face may have been the first meme but that's not what we think of when we think of a meme today, we think more of a picture or a video with some kind of text. I guess the first proper meme in the modern sense as we can look at it today would have been the dancing baby. Um, I'm not sure if you remember that. It was like a little uh, computer-generated baby that uh, was just doing some dancing, basically. It first came online in 1996, um, and it was actually part of a package 3D editing software. Um, someone just found it off there and uploaded it online and it became a internet phenomena and was even featured in some uh, TV shows like Ally McBeal and Third Rock from the Sun back in the day. Uh, and it really spread beyond the internet at that point. So I think that could be considered, well, that is considered the first modern classic meme as we know it. 
Let's talk about uh, Blockbuster and Netflix, because that's like the big the big fight between two giants and nobody expected Netflix to win. So how did that all play out? Blockbuster, I guess we all know and love that. That was, um, you know, quite big in the, in the late, well, in the 1980s and 1990s. And it's been countless nights of people sitting around and having rental movie sessions, but they're nowhere to be found today. And that's mainly because of Netflix. So in the year 2000, Netflix was just starting up and there were a DVD mailing company and, um, Pretty much, they they offered to um, sell themselves to to Blockbuster for about fifty million dollars, but the Blockbuster CEOs didn't really see uh, anything in that, so they actually literally laughed them out, the, laughed Netflix out of the office. They just didn't see it as a viable business. But Netflix didn't give up. They went on to in a few years, in about two thousand and seven, they um, pretty much went into the online um, streaming services sector and decided to that this was going to be the next big thing because they were seeing that um, you know broadband internet was becoming a thing um, most people had it um, computers were becoming in every home so like it, it kind of was like a, a good platform to to get into so they started doing that and to be honest blockbuster saw this they saw netflix um going into the online business. And they said, you know, the CEO of, of Blockbuster at the time famously said that Netflix isn't even on our radar. Um, so they, they didn't see it at all. So for Blockbuster, you can kind of see it from their perspective. Um, their CEO said that uh, Blockbuster was really a, a retail company and not a technology company. They saw, you know, online streaming as something completely different to what they were doing. So they didn't want to mess up the customer base that they already had by changing. So Blockbuster decided to stay with the same thing. But as we know, video streaming was the future and Netflix did go on to thrive. And then Blockbuster pretty much is, uh, well, pretty much is out of business now and, and just a relic of history. Not pretty much. They're, they're all gone, right? There's no, there's <laughs> nothing left. But didn't, yeah, yeah. didn't Blockbuster make some attempt to, to catch up and to get into the streaming business or am I mistaken? Well, they, they did. It was a very fleeting attempt, and it, it was pretty much too little too late. Um, Netflix had a better service. They had the market share. Um, Blockbuster was just coming in at the wrong time, and it just didn't didn't work out for them. If they had gone in a few years earlier, maybe, but they were too late. We're talking about big moments in the history of technology, and my guest is Degogo Altrade. He's the creator of the YouTube channel Cold Fusion and author of the book New Thinking, From Einstein to Artificial Intelligence, The Science and Technology That Transformed Our World. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. 
gogo.com. So, DeGogo, talk about the origins of the telephone, the original telephone, because it is from the original telephone that the smartphone has evolved to, and it's a pretty interesting story of trying to get that technology out and into the world. At the time, so this was the, the in the late 1870s, like um, telegraph was pretty much uh, the, the best form of communication that humans had. So you can think about it. Previously to this time, if you wanted to send a message to someone, it would usually be on horseback or through a pony. And of course, that's quite slow and unreliable. But telegraph, you know, that was almost for the time instant communication. So um, Western Union at the time was um, one of the biggest companies in the telegraph business. They pretty much had a monopoly. And their CEO, William Orton, was um, approached by a young man called Alexander Graham Bell, which might ring a bell. He was the inventor of the telephone. So he he had this new invention and he, he went to William and said, you know, I have this invention. Would you would you like to, to buy it and integrate it into your company? But uh, surprisingly, William didn't really think it was much. He actually famously said that uh, it was an interesting invention, but uh, what use could this company make for an electrical toy? That's literally all William saw it as. Two years later, after William made that statement, the telephone actually took off and he realized the mistake that he made. And for years, he tried to challenge Alexander Graham Bell's patents, but lost and was actually forced to leave the the telephone business um, just a few years later. It's interesting. Like You would think that voice communication would be obvious, but at the time, it just wasn't. Most people probably wouldn't think that a cartoon has much of a place in the history of technology, but Toy Story, the movie Toy Story, really did. So, so explain how. Sure. Um, Toy Story, yeah, it, it's, it wasn't just a movie. It was actually quite a groundbreaking film um, because it was the first fully feature-length film that was completely computer-animated. Um, and that was definitely not a, an easy task when it was made in 1995. But despite how popular it is, a lot of people actually don't know just how much was riding on its success because uh, the m- movie was almost never finished because um, there, was, there was just so much fighting and bickering within the production process. And the thing is, if Toy Story had failed, then Pixar itself would have failed. That's, that's how... Um, much was riding on the success of this film. So we have to go back to the late 1980s to really understand what was going on. So at this time, um, Pixar was actually producing computers, which a lot of people don't know. Um, And this was computers for graphical applications. So anything from animation to geology surveys or engineering. And they're just really seeing how to demonstrate these um, power of their computers to potential clients. So one of the Pixar staff, uh, John Lasseter, he actually came up with the idea of creating little short animation, animated films on these computers that featured toys or inanimate objects that kind of had human-like behaviors. And then during one of these demos, one of the Disney executives saw this and they they loved the idea. They loved the, the concept and they were like, hey, Pixar, why don't you make a feature animated film with us? So the two paired together and... Um, You'd think that this was the start of a, a great relationship, but it really wasn't. What happened was during production, um, Pixar would put some ideas forward um, and Disney hated everything that Pixar pitched at them. Basically, uh, 
Disney wanted the film to be quite dark and serious and they actually wanted Woody, the main character, the main toy, to be quite a unlikable jerk, um, just a terrible person. So it's very different to the toy story that we know today, but that's how it was supposed to be pitched. And it was so bad that in 1993, during a, uh, an early production screening halfway through the, the film's um, completion, there was a screening and both Disney and Pixar just hated it. They hated everything that they saw, and it was so bad that the entire film was scrapped, which is it's hard to believe now. But John Lasseter, the guy who first created those um, animated pieces on the on the demo computers, he just pleaded with the Disney executives and said, "Hey, look, I, I really want to do this, and I think we can we can make something here." And he actually offered to revise the entire script in just two weeks, which is absolutely incredible. Um, and he did it, and he managed to pull it off. From that moment, Disney actually liked what they saw and so did the rest of the Pixar staff. And they went on to create one of the most groundbreaking films of all time, ushering ushering in the computer-generated age of movies, which, yeah, it was, it was almost not going to happen. Certainly the one piece of technology that impacts so many of our lives all the time, all day long, every day, is the smartphone. And for many of us, that means the iPhone. And how the iPhone came to be... Uh, that's a pretty remarkable story. In the mid-2000s, Steve Jobs actually pitted two teams against each other within Apple. Uh, one team was headed by Tony Fidel, and this team was to turn the iPod into a phone, and um, the other team, headed by Scott Falstall, was to shrink the entire Macintosh down into a phone. So one team was going from the bottom up, and the other team was coming from the top down. When Steve Jobs actually went on stage to unveil the the iPhone to the world, he actually did something quite cruel. So in the presentation, um, Steve Jobs was, you know, he took out the phone and was demonstrating how to type and call and do all these things. But then he came up to the contacts uh, section and was like, okay, so how do you delete a contact? And then what he did was he swiped Tony Fidel, the leader of the losing team, off the screen. And according to insiders at the time and Apple employees, he never did this during the um, practice runs of the presentation. So to them, this meant that Tony was in trouble and he was fired. And it was it was actually quite a brutal time because both teams were worked extremely hard under jobs for two straight years. Um, some sacrificed their health. Some, you know, they didn't get much time to take off when they had newborn babies. Some marriages were broken. Um, they just worked without breaks. And yeah, so I guess really it's just important to see the hard work that was behind the scenes. So like next time you see a shiny new iPhone, just kind of think about the sacrifice and what people put in to make this technology pos- possible in the first place. One of the exciting things going on right now that you talk about is in the world of batteries. And I think a lot of us have felt over the years that not much has happened with batteries and that they're problematic in the sense that they take a long time to charge, they don't hold a charge long enough, and things are about to change. A lot of people still think that batteries are quite a bottleneck and haven't been improving for years, but right now there's actually kind of a little battery revolution going on. So we've kind of had the same technology of lithium-ion, which is the dominant batteries in your laptops and your phones for for decades now, since the uh, early 1990s. But a lot of people might not know that, um, for example, like uh, everyone knows the Tesla cars, but um, since 2008, the 
capacity of these batteries have actually gone up by 60%. And these improvements are actually making new things possible, like the drone revolution of like the early 2010s. This wouldn't have been possible with less um, powerful batteries or lighter ba- batteries as light as they are now. So there's, there's a lot of research going on with battery technologies at the moment. For example, we're getting um, solid-state batteries, which are safer, liquid batteries, which are theoretically could power entire neighbourhoods. Even recently, there's been um, the first real production electric planes coming out. So it's really, really interesting to see the, the place that we're at now. But there has to be one question asked, and that's how, why did it take so long? And the reason for this recent revolution was pretty much because of Tesla. So now that Tesla is starting to succeed and all the other car manufacturers are saying, okay, electric cars are going to be a thing, now there's um, really a potential for a huge market with um, batteries. So with this possibility of such a large profit, um, it means that there's now a monetary incentive for a lot of research agencies and uh, even car manufacturers to put in um, all this money into making batteries better for you know for next generation batteries. So it really kind of is a battery revolution under our nose going on right now. Well, I appreciate you sharing the stories because it's always interesting to hear what happened and how things came to be, especially regarding the things that we use every day in our lives. Dagogo Altrade has been my guest. He's the creator of the YouTube channel called Cold Fusion, and he's author of the book New Thinking, From Einstein to Artificial Intelligence, The Science and Technology that Transformed Our World. There's a link to his YouTube channel and a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Dagogo. No worries. Thanks for having me, Mike. This year, you don't need to reinvent yourself. Every day is a chance to build your future. And M1 Finance wants to help you keep building on what you started last year and the year before that. M1 is the finance super app where you can invest, borrow, save, and spend all in one place. More than half a million people already have accounts with M1. It's easy to set up your account, and M1 is designed to be personalized for your needs. Invest how you want with access to fractional shares and unmatched automation for free. You can borrow against your investments at super low rates, just 2 to 3.5%, and use this flexible portfolio line of credit for anything, like investing more into your portfolio, refinancing other loans, or funding large projects. M1 ties it together in a free digital account so you can have more flexibility and smoother money movements. Just keep in mind, borrowing involves higher risks and rates may vary. Visit m1finance.com something to sign up and get $30 to invest. Remember, that's m1finance.com something. Terms and conditions apply. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before, and the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, and he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, 
uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you get sick, you go to the doctor because the common belief is that whatever's wrong with you, modern medicine can do something about it and maybe just be able to cure it. There's a real problem if you believe that because it's not as true as people like to believe. The fact is that modern medicine is really good at some things, but not so good at others. And one of the things it's not so good at is making you healthy and increasing your lifespan. And you might think, well, wait a minute, that's exactly what healthcare is all about. But you're about to hear a very different story with some very compelling evidence behind it. Robert Kaplan is a behavioral scientist at Stanford, and he's been studying healthcare for several years, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, and why. Robert is the author of a book called More Than Medicine, The Broken Promise of American Health. Hi, Robert. Thanks for being here. Hi, Michael. It's great to be with you. So what's the core problem here? What is it that you study and what is it you're mostly concerned about? Over the last series of decades, uh, we've been studying what makes people better, what makes people live longer, healthier lives. And we encountered this terrible dilemma, and that is that we're spending more and more on health care in relation to other rich countries. So now U.S. healthcare care is the biggest sector and the biggest economy in the history of the entire world. So as these health care costs have grown, we have this other troubling phenomena, and that is that in relation to other rich countries, our life expectancies are actually going down. Now, overall, life expectancies are increasing, but they're declining in relation to other rich countries. So we think that's a big problem. We're spending more, but we're getting less in, in return. And why is that? Why is healthcare so expensive, and why are we not getting more bang for our buck? We have a system that's you might call a reactive sick care system. So a system that, that tries to find and fix health problems and identifying cures but we're not attending enough to the real underlying determinants of long and and healthy lives. There is a belief, I think, whether it's true or not, that uh, the United States has the best healthcare system in the world, and if you're sick, going to the doctor is a good idea because there's probably something they can do to help you, right? Well, I think one of the big issues is that there is a narrative, and the narrative goes something like this, that um, if if you're not feeling well, we can find the problem and fix it. So diagnose it and treat it. And part of what I've been working on for for a fair number of years now is, is is that narrative really right? So for example, um, how well are we really doing at identifying the basic, you know, the basic problem 
and then fixing it in relation to having a, a broader approach that tries to think through well, what is it that's making lives shorter and, and less desirable. But are we there? Are our lives shorter and less desirable than they used to be? That's really a good question, Michael. So that you've probably been reading a little bit lately about how life expectancy in the United States declined over the last couple of years. That is actually quite an unusual phenomenon. So if we go back a century or so, life expectancy in the United States has been increasing and increasing at, a, at an impressive rate. But it's not increasing as rapidly as it has been in other countries. So, for example, if you go back to the 1950s, um, that the life expectancies in Japan and in South Korea uh, were significantly lower than they are in the United States. And then we've now been bypassed. So uh, South Korea is just a great example, particularly for women. Uh, they, women in South Korea have a life expectancy now that's near 90 years. Way back in the mid-50s, by the way, it was only about 55 or 60 years in, in South Korea. So something's happening in other countries that's allowing them to increase their life expectancy at a, at a much more dramatic rate than, than in the United States. And again, there are a lot of determinants of life expectancy, and medicine definitely is one of them. We don't want to abandon that. But I'm, I'm worried that we're, we're neglecting the real uh, most important determinants of how long people live. Well, wait a second, though. What you just said, that women in South Korea in the 1950s had a life expectancy uh, somewhere in their 60s, and now it's near 90, that's huge. What's going on in South Korea that life expectancy in basically 60 years or so jumped by 50%? So I'm going to go on a little tangent, if that's okay, and just point out that Here in the United States, if you look at something like getting regular mammograms, for example, you know, a find-it-fix-it solution, for women, it may increase life expectancy, but most of the analyses suggest that, on average, that increase in life expectancy is relatively small. Um, So if you take all of the big randomized clinical trials that have been done and aggregate them in a meta-analysis, it turns out that the increase in life expectancy from mammography is only about a month or so on average. But if you look at something like educational attainment, the highest, highest year of education you've achieved, uh, that turns out to be one of the strongest correlates of life expectancy. The difference in life expectancy between someone with a graduate degree versus someone with less than a high school education is about 12 years. So just the order of magnitude is enormous. And there have been a lot of these studies uh, geographically in the U.S., and one of the most interesting ones is if you look at the maps of life expectancy by zip code in a city like Philadelphia, uh, people living uh, in the Liberty Bell area have life expectancies that are about 20 years longer than people in the adjacent uh, zip code in East Philadelphia. So there are huge differentials in life expectancy associated with some of these social factors, And actually, the things that we really believe in, and by the way, I believe in as well, the things that we should keep doing, but a lot of these uh, interventions in the medical system have relatively small effects on life expectancy and quality of life. But what is it that happens? You don't inherently live longer because you sit in a classroom through a graduate degree or live near the Liberty Bell. So what's going on? I wish I could tell you exactly. Um, So there is a lot of work 
trying to figure that out. But we do know that these socioeconomic variables, that what we can now call the social determinants of health, are highly correlated with health habits. And so we know, for example, that prudent diet, regular physical activity, uh, and avoidance of cigarettes are key factors in, in longer, healthier lives. And again, um, if you just take cigarettes, which is something that I've, I just had a profound interest in for a long time, um, you know, we have seen these very systematic declines in deaths from heart disease and cancers, and all cancers actually, over the course of the last couple of decades. And people scramble to explain those in terms of medicines that people are taking and cancer screening tests. And clearly those have contributed medicines and screening tests, but the strongest correlate of those declines in cancers and heart disease is the decline in cigarette smoking. Yet we know from some other work that we've done that uh, cigarette smokers in the United States are actually not advised by their doctors as often as you would think to stop smoking. So, for example, uh, in the medical expenditure panel survey, a big national survey that's, uh, that's done by the federal government, people self-identify as to whether or not they're smokers. So they, they will respond to a question in the survey that says, do you smoke cigarettes? And among those people who smoke cigarettes, only half of them report that their health care provider advised them to quit. So there's this enormous opportunity. We know that cigarette smoking is one of the very worst things people can do. But in fact, it doesn't fit into this narrative, uh, the, sort of the find-it-fix-it narrative of what makes people better, and it gets neglected. What would be interesting to know is of the smokers who said that their health care provider did recommend that they quit smoking, how many of them actually quit smoking? I mean, it, it wouldn't seem to me that having your doctor suggest you stop smoking is a very effective way to quit smoking. Yes, that you're absolutely right, that just advising people to quit doesn't do the trick. And so that we actually have been studying that. To what extent does the primary health care provider go to that next step? That is, refer to uh, some other provider that's a specialist in, in smoking cessation or uh, prescribe um, a nicotine patch or some other medication that might be helpful in getting people to smoke. As far as we can tell from the survey data, those are very underutilized. And again, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit into the ordinary pattern of, of how we think of, of uh, cures and, and how healthcare is delivered. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, certainly when you think about it, people don't go to the doctor for lifestyle advice. They go to the doctor because something hurts. And so th the expectation is that you'll give me something for what hurts. And, and in fairness, by the way, that I think that the primary care communities, general internists and family physicians, have been much more active, and, and they are making this a much bigger part of their practice, but we just have an enormous way to go. It would seem, though, that, that if the goal is to get people to lead a healthier life, because that has more impact in terms of them living longer and being healthier than the find it and cure it mentality that we have now, that that has to start with the patient. That has to be up to people to decide that that's a priority, that you can't dictate it or legislate it, and healthcare can't make people be healthy. And maybe that's not the role of healthcare. 
again, I, I think that an awful lot of this is there isn't there is this cures narrative, and the the narrative is that medicine does a really good job of identifying what's wrong with you and fixing it. And so the idea that a lot of people may be thinking when they go to their doctors is, well, I don't have to worry about this because if I get diabetes or, um, God forbid, some sort of cancer, the medical care system will fix it. And the problem is that, in fact, the system doesn't do very well at fixing those things. Uh, and I can, I can give you a couple examples if you'd like. Yeah, sure, but, sure. So if you take something like the the very best drugs that we have in preventive medicine, one example might be the statin drugs that lower cholesterol. And the assumption that people have is that if they take these medications, then that will fix the problem and they don't have to worry about death from heart disease. But in fact, that's not right. That if you look at the large, the, the large randomized trials, what they show is that the medications reduce your probability of death from heart disease, but not by very much. They reduce them some. And if you look at death from any cause, that is, you're not just considering death from heart disease, but you consider, are you likely to be alive over the next decade, for example? The numbers are surprisingly low, but the public expects this enormous benefit, where in fact the benefit is, is relatively small. So if I can go back to that example of, well, how, how much life expectancy do you gain by having high cholesterol diagnosed and treated? And there are various ways to analyze this, but it's, it's probably about six months. And blood pressure is probably a year and a half. But again, um, the difference in having a graduate degree versus a high school degree, or less than a high school degree, is about 12 years. So there are very big effects uh, for things that we're not attending to. And there are significant but very small effects for a lot of the things that we consider the cornerstone of, of preventive medicine. This is really, uh, well, it's interesting, but it's really significant because I, I agree with you. There is this belief, this assumption with people in the United States that whatever's wrong with you, the doctor has something for it and can fix it. And and in many cases, they may have something for it, like high blood pressure medication and diabetes medications and all that, but it doesn't do what people think it does. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. So we're really operating under a false assumption. And then the other side of what you're saying, which I, just, I still can't understand, is that there's a, a 12-year difference in life expectancy between somebody who has less than a high school degree and somebody who has a postgraduate degree, and nobody can explain why that is other than maybe it's the logical, well, you're more educated, so you're more up-to-date on, on health information and whatever, but 12 years? So it seems like the word needs to get out that if you think your doctor is going to save you, uh, you have another thing coming. There are a variety of things that I think we should be doing. So first of all, we should be thinking about producing health rather than producing health care. So we have a system that, that really is focused on being reactive and taking care of, of people who are sick. We have to get it out of the, the acute disease model, that is the find-it-fix-it model, and coming to the realization that most of what we're spending money on and what, uh, most of what people are concerned about has to do with chronic diseases that don't have any simple cure. We probably have to think a little bit about how we finance or how we use our resources to make people healthy. 
And again, so much of the discussion about making people healthy has to do with investing in medical care and hospitals and, and clinics. And again, to be fair, hospitals and clinics are a cornerstone of, of what we need. But we have to come to the recognition that we have to integrate healthcare with a whole lot of services and activities outside of the healthcare system. Can you make people healthy if they don't want to be healthy? Probably not. Although we might be able to create environments where people are healthier, and you know, your question is a really good one. The best example of this is what's happened with with cigarette smoking. So some of the cigarette smoking achievement has to do with um, with people making individual choices, but an awful lot of it has to do with early changes in labeling, um, smoking policies that didn't allow people to smoke at workplaces or on airplanes and in restaurants and so forth. Don't you think that the healthcare system has done a pretty good job uh, getting the word out about certain preventative measures like cancer screenings and physicals and mammograms and things like that that are designed to help people stay healthier because you're screening for disease early on? It's interesting that... that there are issues like uh, should a woman get a mammogram, I mean, get a uh, pap smear every year or every third year? Well, there's an enormous debate, and, and people will fight to the death over over the different positions and look at the data and so forth. But at the end of the day, uh, getting a pap smear every year versus every third year might only mean a differential life expectancy of a couple days at best. Or cigarette smoking, uh, if you choose to smoke cigarettes, you might be sacrificing somewhere between seven and 10 full years of life expectancy. So um, cigarette smoking is, is a very big impact. Frequency of, of screening for uh, cervical and um, uterine cancer is important, but just not of the same magnitude. As you said in the very beginning of this discussion, the healthcare system in the United States is so huge and it is difficult enough for individuals to navigate when they do need services. But what, knowing what you know and having looked at all this data, what is it that does make a difference for people who, who are interested in doing the right thing and, and leading a healthy lifestyle? What are the big things that people can do that the research says will improve your health and help you live longer? If you look at some of what's been coming out of the literature over the last decade or so, just a couple habits, regular physical activity, a prudent diet, and avoidance of cigarette smoking. Those have a big impact on the big diseases, diabetes, heart disease, and cancers. And together, those account for about 50% of the premature deaths in the United States and other, other developed countries. So that at the individual level, taking good care of yourself, developing healthy habits, and prudent use of, of medical services as well can have a big impact and that the idea that you don't have to worry about things because if you get sick, um, the medical care system will fix you. I, I think uh, I think that making that switch could be very important for people. Which interestingly is pretty standard conventional advice, but oftentimes the standard conventional advice works. Robert Kaplan has been my guest. He's a behavioral scientist at Stanford University. And he's author of the book, More Than Medicine, The Broken Promise of American Health. 
There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. People post a lot of things on social media, and the editors of purewow.com came up with some suggestions regarding what not to post on social media. And here are their suggestions, and they, they ring right to me. Stop the endless stream of pet and kid photos. A few are fine, but if that's all you post, everyone is really getting tired of it. Don't post anything after two glasses of wine or more. (laughs) Only post when you're sober and you will not regret it. They recommend if you're going to post selfies, only post them if they are spectacular photos of you. Keep those photos out of the airplane window to yourself, because uh, those of us looking on social media, we really can't see anything. You really had to be there. And the leg perspective photos of you on the beach, it's just not as cool as it once was. And that is Something You Should Know. Episodes of Something You Should Know post every Monday and Thursday morning. And so that you don't miss a single episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribing to this podcast is free. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.